you know, in all seriousness, I do hope that they are having a relaxing time and they are able to have a little bit of a break. Um, I'm really excited that, uh, that as a church, we're able to kind of give them the time to take some weekends off because my wife and I have been here for about four and a half years now, and I think I remember Pastor Daryl missing maybe like two Sundays. And, and, and for a church of our size, uh, most lead pastors will take a month off during the summer or have a sabbatical or something like that. And so as we grow and mature as a church, I do hope that we can bless them in this way, that they can get away for a weekend or whatnot. But actually this time around, they're, they're busy uh, ministering uh, with the halls in, in, in Hawaii. So uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is John. Um, me and my wife are on the Hilltop Leadership Team along with uh, Will and Amy and George and Sarah. And honestly, there's so many uh, capable leaders in our community, small group leaders and all that. Uh, and so it's a privilege to be just one voice among many is how I think of today. Um, but um, I'm excited about uh, the word today. I thought that we would kind of cover the, uh, the topic. I've called the sermon New Beginnings uh, because we've been in a sermon series called uh, New Year, New Affections. And uh, how many of you know if you're on the journey of faith for some time, if you are pursuing the Lord and you're asking the Lord to stir up uh, delights for Him, affections for Him, it's not always rosy and peachy. <laughs> There, there's always ups and downs. There's always mountaintops and valleys. And it's very important for us as maturing believers to know how is it that I pick myself back up by the grace of the Holy Spirit. I hit that reset button again. It's new beginning after new beginning after new beginning. Uh, it, it's not just, uh, you know, I sign up for this thing and it's just going to be the highway to heaven from here on out, right? And so um, I call this new beginnings on godly repentance is, is the idea of what do we do when we feel like we're in that rut, when we feel apathetic. You know, for, for myself, um, I really, really enjoyed the, um, the New Year fast. I felt like my heart was so tender toward the Lord. And then the week after, I saw those same patterns of dullness. I saw those same patterns of boredom come in. And, and when you're in that rut, when you, when it's, whether it's apathy, whether it's, it's barrenness, whether it's hurts or, or guilt or shame or failure, whatever it is, it's very important for us as believers to know how do we re-engage with the Lord instead of getting stuck in that valley. Very important. Uh, and um, I actually started um, thinking about this because I was reading some articles about uh, New Year's resolutions uh, back in January, and, and uh, there was this interesting article with this interview uh, with someone named Dr. Kelly McGonigal. She's a Stanford professor, and she kind of was in this interview about why people fail at their New Year's resolutions. Uh, but, but I ended up reading parts of her book, and, and it, was, it was very interesting stuff. But, but there were two things that kind of stuck out to me, kind of a spectrum. On the one hand, if you tend to really focus on your successes, and you kind of celebrate, you know, I'm a good person, I'm doing the right thing, that's actually a hindrance to personal transformation. And I'll explain why with some interesting studies. But then on the other hand, if you focus on your failures and you're caught up with feelings of guilt and shame, that's also 
uh, counterproductive. That's also a barrier to personal transformation. Now, this is secular psychology, right? So we're not looking at this for biblical truths. But I think it's a helpful illustration to think about the, the ways that we can fall to the left and the right. On the one hand, you have this kind of self-righteousness that focus on your actions. You focus on your good works and say, you know what, I'm overall a pretty good person, and so I'm all right. Right? And on the other hand is this sort of pattern of self-condemnation where we're stuck in that valley, and neither extreme is okay. Uh, so, you know, since we had the time, I thought I'd share some of the studies. I find them personally interesting. I'm very nerdy, and so these are, these are fascinating toward me, for me. But um, it's a funny study. So one of them was, um, so these, uh, these researchers got together, together a group of dieters, and uh, they had two groups among the dieters. And one of the groups, they said, oh, look at how much progress you're making towards your weight loss goals. This is how much progress you're making. Good job. And the other group, they didn't say anything. Now, psychologists are very clever. So, you know, they don't want to sort of let people in on what the experience is about. So after the whole thing was over, they slyly said, uh, by the way, uh, we want to offer you a thank you gift. Uh, would you like an apple or a chocolate bar? And, and the group that uh, was not told anything, it was about 50-50. So, you know, like half the people chose the apple, half the people chose the chocolate bar. But out of the group that was told, hey, look at how much progress you're, you're making, you're doing such a good job, 85% chose the chocolate bar. And, and the reason for that is because they were so kind of, they were feeling proud about, oh, look at how much progress that they made, that they justified kind of cheating, or they justified doing the bad thing. But, but, there's, but there's actually more uh, sobering examples of this. They've done studies, extensive studies with um, people that are, I mean, just in short, people that are given opportunities to really disagree uh, with racist and sexist statements. They're like, no, that's really wrong. In the next phase of the experiment, they're much more likely to have racist and sexist tendencies in hypothetical situations. This is what um, Dr. Kelly McGonigal says. Uh, she says, when it comes to right and wrong, most of us are not striving for moral perfection. Here it is. We just want to feel good enough, which then gives us permission to do whatever we want. You know, again, this is just an illustration but I think it, turn, it, it speaks of that kind of human tendency towards self-righteousness, right? But on the other hand, and you know, these stu studies can be very you know, sobering. There's this um, study where they got together a group of 144 adults, and um, they kind of gave the adults, uh, they, they asked them to keep track of how much alcohol they drank every night. And then the morning after, they would ask the adults to kind of keep track of their thoughts of how they felt about the night before. The sad thing is, across the board, the people, when people felt more shame and guilt about the night before, they were far more likely to drink more that night and even more the next night. See, it's this visual, vicious cycle, and I, I believe it's a, it's a helpful illustration. As we think about repentance, it's a helpful illustration to think about, on the one hand, this kind of self-righteousness, and on the other hand, is self-condemnation, but Jesus provides a better way, and it's called the way of repentance. It's neither self-righteousness, nor is it self-condemnation. It's repentance. And, and I think it's very important that we lock into this uh, this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's, let's turn to first, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. 
And uh, verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 8, and I'll be reading out of the ESV, it says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So uh, there's some important uh, historical context here that uh, it's actually just helpful to know for, for, for uh the Corinthian letters in general. Uh, but basically, the way to understand Corinthians is that uh, the church in Corinth was just a hot mess. <laughs> it was just, if you read through 1 Corinthians, they've got a lot of problems. Um, you know, if you, if you read through Corinthians, there's, there's disunity. People are boasting about their spiritual gifts. There's people suing each other in the church. Uh, of course, there's that infamous story in 1 Corinthians 5 where a man has a sexually immoral relationship with his mother or stepmother. But the worst part about it, I mean, this is unbelievable. The worst part about it is that the church in Corinth then boasts about this man. And, and presumably he says like, oh, oh, look at this man and the freedom he has in Christ. And if that wasn't bad enough, if you read uh, later on, there's um, in the early church when they had communion like we do, they had the wine and the bread, but they also had a meal together. The problem was that uh, during this communion meal, they were excluding the poor and they were showing up to the communion meal drunk. I mean, this was an absolute disaster of a church, you know. Um, but one of the problems that came up was that um, basically there was this faction arising at, at the church in Corinth, and, and there was this leader that was rebelling against Paul's authority. So they said, you know what, we're going to break off from this. Uh, we have nothing to do with Paul. We're rebelling against you. So there's a whole back and forth where Paul visits them and writes them a letter. And so this is, what, this is the letter that Paul talks about when he says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter. Uh, thankfully, the letter worked. So in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, it says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So so actually, the Corinthians kind of take it to the other extreme, and they start punishing this man. Uh, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Listen to the words of Paul. He hits that balance uh, of correcting and rebuking the Corinthians church, but it's out of love. It's that, it's that balance, right? So uh, we'll look at this later, but um, the, the first thing I want us to see from these verses in 2 Corinthians 7, and I think this is so important. Rebuking someone out of love is not necessarily a bad thing. The conviction of sin is not necessarily harsh or legalistic. You know, some people, repentance is not necessarily a bad thing. See, some of us have gone to churches where the, the pastors were maybe controlling or abusive. So when we hear the words repentance, when we hear the word discipline, when we hear the word conviction, it's like, oh, that's just like old school harshness. I'm telling you, from Scripture, we need to be very careful. Repentance is not a bad thing. It's a gift from the Lord. 
Discipline and rebuke are not bad things. It's things that we can do for one another to save souls from death, is what it says in James. You know, there's this real issue in a lot, a wide swath of the churches in America where people think we can live in compromise because Jesus' blood just covers everything. That is a lie and a deception. You know, it, it may not be as, um, you know, so intense of a kind of thing here in New England, but uh, cultural Christianity, especially in the, in the South and the Bible Belt, it can be a scary thing. And it, it's not just me saying this. Uh, John Piper, Paul Washer, they're all from Texas. Many ministries obviously have come out of Texas. Um, my wife is from Texas. You know, so, but, but John Piper has said, you know, he's very extreme, but he said that, that, Southern Christianity makes him want to vomit. Now, he, you might be like, whoa, 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 why, why are you saying that? But, um, again, I have nothing against Texas. It's, <laughs> if I had to move from Massachusetts, I would move there. Um, but I, I spent a summer in Texas, and I won't name, you know, the company that I was working with. But um, I, was, I was working there for a summer, and everybody's Christian. I don't know if you've ever been to the South. Like, everybody's Christian. There's Bibles in the grocery stores, everything. I, I actually like it, right? <laughs> but what grieved me was that these people, all of my co- coworkers would, would go to church on Sundays. Every single Saturday night, they'd be partying, getting drunk, sleeping with each other. As if it was no big deal. Now, as we talk about this, I am not talking about the kind of sin which you're warring against. If you're caught in a vicious cycle, you just cling to the cross. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of attitude that exists among some Christians in America where it's just, you know what, it's okay if I sin because Jesus' blood covers me. That is a lie and a deception. You cannot just go to church on Sundays and expect that makes you saved. See, it's not that good works saves you, but the evidence of salvation is you grow in good works and that you're sanctified. In, in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, examine yourself. See if you're still in the faith. I, look, I know, it, again, my heart is, if you have any questions about this, come to me. Let's talk. But we need to settle this and be clear in our minds because this has eternal consequences. Uh, Let's look at some scriptures about this. Uh, For instance, 1 John 3, uh, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now what what, uh, John is talking about in 1 John 3, verse 6 is, is this keeps on sinning. Okay, it's not just if you sin once or it's not the the thing that John is talking about again is let's just be clear. It's unrepented, rebellious sin. It's that attitude where you think I can keep on sinning and it's totally fine. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
Again, it's if you make that practice of sinning, it's just, I'm just going to dwell here, sit here, I don't care because Jesus, but that is a deception. Now, here's the thing is that, don't, don't get confused here. Now, we're going you know, to turn to the other side of the coin. You don't want to look at this and say, oh, if I sin, I'm not saved. Or even if you have an addiction that you're warring against, if you have certain patterns in your life that you're trying to break, and you're, and you're seeking the Lord and say, Lord, deliver me of this sin. That's not what John is talking about. In fact, 1 John is one of the most grace-filled books of the entire Bible. It has verses like this, like, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. It has verses like, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to cleanse us of our sins. But see, the problem is, some of us think that there's a contradiction between repentance and grace, between the Lord's discipline and his mercy. But there's no contradiction between those things. You you might think, wow, John, why are you being so harsh? It's not harsh. The way that we receive the grace and mercy of the Lord is through repentance. Okay, here's an even more intense verse. Hebrews 10 Verse 26, Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on, now listen to the language again. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And in verse 31, it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We need to be extremely clear. Churches in America, the pulpits of America need to be extremely clear on this issue. You cannot live in compromised Christianity. When we are saved by the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's our inner nature that we war against sin. We are made into new creations. The old man is gone, the new has come. Right, so again, I just want to highlight that, you know, I think about this. Um, One of the ways that the Lord shows us his kindness is by disciplining us. (laughs) It says in in Proverbs uh, 3, verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, nor be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves. And the father, like a father, the son in whom he delights. So one of the ways that we experience the delight and the love of the Lord is his discipline over our lives. It's not a harsh thing. So there's some of us this morning that need to hear this. That if you have a hardened heart, if you're in a place where you think, you know what, I could just do whatever I want with my life. I do not need to obey scripture and Jesus' blood will forgive me. We need to examine our hearts. Are we right with God? John, Paul, they all say, test your salvation. See, examine your salvation. If you are truly saved, it will bear fruit. It's not that the good work saves you, but if you are saved, it's going to produce that obedience, that, that, that desire to obey the Lord. But I believe that, as many of us need to hear that, there are some of us that also need to hear that grief is not the end of the story. (laughs) So godly grief is a good thing. We need it in times when the Lord disciplines us. 
But that's not the end of the story. Let's take a look back to uh, 2 Corinthians 7. It says, uh, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Paul often does this back and forth kind of thing. It's like, just choose, (laughs) I do what I do not want to do, right? But why is he saying that? Why is he saying, I, did not reg- I do not regret it, but I did regret it? Because it pains Paul to see the Corinthians grieved. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. See, let's just take a look at what Paul, because he sets up a contrast between, between godly grief and worldly grief. Let's try to look at the characteristics of, of what's the difference. He says, though only for a while. How many of you know that you're not supposed to be enslaved in grief and guilt and shame? That that's not somehow holy? As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Look at this. Paul says that the grief is not the goal. The grief is the means to the goal of repentance. What does this mean? Grief and repentance are not the same thing. Many of us have learned to think that, oh, somehow if I'm sad, that that's the same thing as repentance. Being sad is not repentance. It may be a part of it, but some of us need to be delivered from this. For you, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Right? Godly grief doesn't produce loss. For godly grief produces a repentance, this is so good, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. How many of us can think about those situations when we were overcome with grief or, or, or uh, uh, regret, right? There, there, there's, there, there's certain failures in the past. There, there's certain mistakes, some choices that we made when we were younger, or some people that we disappointed, or some people that we hurt. You know, godly repentance, there's no regret. There's no regret whatsoever. And then it says this, whereas worldly grief produces death. What is worldly grief? You know, Paul often talks about sort of the, the, the law of life and liberty in Galatians, and the law of death. And, and, and living by the spirit and living by the flesh. To me, when I read the words worldly grief, that to me means the kind of grief that is born out in the flesh. It's just this sadness and this sorrow that is just over my own actions. It's just it's, it's a sadness and a sorrow without hope of salvation. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, all you can experience is worldly grief. Worldly grief is the kind of grief that is just filled with self-hatred or regret. And, and I, the, the great irony is, and, and this is very personal to me because I've struggled with this a lot. The, the great irony is that self, this kind of self-condemnation, this kind of worldly grief, it can actually be a form of self-righteousness for some of us. Some of us think that, oh, if I only beat myself up enough, then maybe the Lord will have affection for me. You know, if I just cry enough tears, maybe then, listen, your tears and your beating yourself up is not what saves you. It's the blood of Jesus that saves us. It's not being bound by shame or guilt that saves us. Some of us this morning need to shift gears from that worldly sorrow, that just beating ourselves up. It's like those monks, you know, that used to 
to flog themselves. They were trying to punish themselves for their sin. Jesus is the one that took the punishment for us. His sacrifice is sufficient. And when we're caught in guilt and shame, we're ultimately saying that Jesus' sacrifice is not really enough for my sin. I think that some of us, the reason why we fall into this is because, you know, we try to easily define repentance. Oh, maybe if I'm just sad. You know, some of us, maybe, maybe we just think, oh, if I just change my actions, that's just repentance. No, that, that may not be repentance. That, that might just be behavior modification. That's, that's not repentance, right? Or some of us, we may think it's just the changing of the mind. You know, that's what it means in the Greek. Or, but if you look biblically at people that are repenting, it's not just I'm changing my mind. That could, that could be intellectualism. So I just want to close here with thinking about what really is repentance then? See, the, the reason why it's kind of difficult for us to kind of engage with repenta- uh, repentance is that it, it's like a spiritual discipline, like prayer. Like you can define prayer as talking with God, but, but you think about prayer, it's so much more than that. As you learn to walk out in the way of godly repentance, it just becomes sweeter and sweeter by day. And you just get refreshed and refreshed by day. And you can't necessarily define it, but once you start engaging in repentance and you start walking out, you begin to understand it at the heart level. So for me, instead of trying to define it, uh, I want to tell a quick Bible story that I think is so, so, uh, such a good example of repentance. Uh, It's the story of Zacchaeus. Show of hands, how many of you know the story of Zacchaeus? I love that story. You know, it's this little old man sitting in the tree. <laughs> you know, no, he was a complete outcast. He had no friends, no one who loved him. He was a tax collector, so he would cheat people of their taxes and take money and put it into his own pocket. You know, I could just imagine Zacchaeus going over to that tree and just, you know, I hope I, hope I can see something cool today from Jesus. You know, maybe, because maybe, the reason why he went up to a tree was that there's hundreds or even thousands of people. There are crowds. You know, maybe, maybe if I can see Jesus, I can see him do a, a miracle. You know? I, do you think he had an expectation that Jesus would do anything for him personally? I don't know. But he's up there, and I, I'm sure he's filled with guilt and shame. He's an outcast. Nobody likes him. And then just picture, you know, Jesus is walking by the path. And all of a sudden, in a way that just gives me the chill, he just locks eye with Zacchaeus and he says, come, I want to eat with you tonight. Why did, why did Jesus choose Zacchaeus out of all the thousands of people? I mean, that's the question is, why does Jesus even choose someone like me? Why does Jesus ever choose anything like any of us here, here, here this morning? You know what it is? It's the mercy and the kindness of Jesus. Zacchaeus did nothing to deserve the mercy of Jesus. He just said, Zacchaeus, just like he chose us for salvation, he just says, Zacchaeus, come down here. I want to eat with you tonight. 
And you know what happens then? Zacchaeus does a complete 180 degree turnaround. That's repentance. It's not checking off a formula. It's not just being sad enough. It's not behavior modification. His entire life is transformed. He says, Jesus, everyone I've cheated, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. Did Jesus command him to do this? Was this one of the 10th commandments? No, it's just a spontaneous expression where you, you, you encounter the mercy of Christ and you're like, Jesus, my life has changed. See, that's what repentance is. Part of what it is, it's just encountering the mercy of Christ. It's the human response to the mercies of Christ. See, it's not just about a certain formula. How many of us have encountered this mercy of Christ? (laughs) How many of, I mean, maybe we've encountered it in the past. But in, the, in the, you know, the whole new beginnings, if you're in the valley, how, can you encounter, can you engage with the mercy of Christ in the midst of the valley? That mercy that takes our crimson stains and washes them white as snow. Like, like it says in, what is it, Micah 7, that he will, I love this, he will cast our sins into the very depths of the sea. He will remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. You can't get farther than east to west. He's going to remove that sin from you. You just call out to him. You just cry out for the blood of Jesus and your sins are clean. You know what I love about the story of Zacchaeus is when when Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, do you think he was filled with shame? No, when Jesus speaks... Shame has no place. When Jesus speaks, we are set free. Some of us need to hear that. Shame is from the devil. When, how do you know Jesus' voice? Now, he might rebuke you. He might discipline you even now. But does that produce shame? It produces freedom. And joy. I will give away half of my possession. I'm so glad that you came into my life, Jesus. Or I, I think about Paul. You know, I, uh, his entire life was changed with that one encounter with Jesus where he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Yes, it's a rebuke. But was there harshness there? Was there anger? No, he says, Paul, with such tenderness. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's life is forever changed. Our repentance before the Lord may look like many different things. It may look like tears. It may look like sadness. It may look like joy. It may look like laughter. It may look like giving away 50% of your income to the poor. It may look like, Jesus, I've received your mercy, so now I want to go send your mercy to the ends of the earth. I want to proclaim your excellencies now that I've encountered your mercy. It may look in a hundred different ways. But what it comes down to this morning is have we encountered the mercy of Christ? Like in Hebrews 4, it says that, that, that we can come before God's throne of grace with confidence for mercy. That throne of grace, his very throne is a throne of grace. He, he, he sits on a mercy seat. I mean, I could tell you a hundred stories from the Bible about the mercy of God, that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. I just read the Psalms. 
David encountered the mercy of Christ before Christ came to the earth. If we lock in to the mercy of Christ, that is the, that, that is the way that doesn't stray to self-righteousness and just thinks, I could just do whatever I want. And we don't stray into self-condemnation. We're stuck in the valley of shame. It's that middle way. So I want to uh, keep this uh, time a little bit short because uh, I just want to have a time of, of ministry uh, just so that we can reflect um, in our own hearts about, uh, yeah, and we'll may actually invite the whole worship team up. We'll, we'll have some time to just reflect and soak, but ask the Holy Spirit, are you in a place right now where you're just apathetic and you've just hardened to sin? And maybe you've gone so far, or maybe you look at yourself and maybe you think, do I, do I really have a living relationship with Jesus? Because right now, I just do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. Right? I'm not, again, I'm not saying that, oh, that means you're not saved. or what, but, but it's between you and the Lord. Where, where's the condition of your heart right now? Where are your affections for Jesus? Are you in that place where it's just hard? It's just apathetic? Or maybe you've, you've fallen into the same sin so many times that you're just, you're just dulled. Or maybe are you on the other, other side where it's this kind of, just this condemnation and shame and guilt and, oh, I just feel so bad and I, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Whichever, whichever way the heart falls, the only hope that we have is the mercy and the kindness and the tender love of Jesus. Some of you, he's, he's calling out your name, and he's just saying, you've fallen off the path. <laughs> I just love that. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting? It's not, a, it's not a voice of condemnation. It may be a gentle rebuke. It may be a reminder. If you're in that place where you have a hard heart this morning, let's just, let's just cry out to the Lord. Lord, give me, give me the conviction of my sin, Lord God. Lord, would you break through the hardness of my heart, Lord God. I can't break through this on my own strength. No matter how much you try to get emotional, you can't change your heart. It's only the Holy Spirit. Or on the other hand, if you're, if you're caught in the valley and you're just filled with shame and, and I've been there. I mean, some of you know, I, I shared actually a year ago about my, uh, just testimony about my struggle with pornography in the first year of, year and a half of, of, of my marriage. Oh, I, you know, you, you might hear this message and know it. Oh, self-condemnation is a bad thing. But it's still, I understand how hard it is. When you're caught in that valley of shame, it's so difficult. But let me say this, Jesus' blood speaks a better word. The Holy Spirit is mighty. It's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. But the Holy Spirit is well able. So let's just open up this time for prayer and worship and reflection. Uh, if you want prayer, you can... Uh, uh, come up to the front and just receive prayer. Maybe if some of our core team leaders want to come up and, and just pray for people. You know, sometimes I just respond to, uh, you know, the ministry time myself. And then I get up and I pray for others. Let's, it's just family time. Let's just pray for one another. Reflect. Let the Holy Spirit speak to us. There's no guilt, no shame.
Let's see what the Spirit does.